So let's let's move on from new wave to singer songwriters is next on the list. And you've already mentioned Bruce. Now I'm going to come clean. I've never been a Bruce Springsteen fan. I think he's amazing. Yeah. Um, I can totally see why people um, get very obsessed with him and why for many people he's the greatest and he's the boss and all that. I've never liked it. I've never, I've never liked his, I quite like Nebraska, the stripped down acoustic Porter studio record. It just doesn't resonate with me. What about you? Absolutely the same here. And I've bought all of his albums at least once. And there are bits I like, you know, Jungle Town's great, Across the River's great, Nebraska. The lyrics really are good. amazing. The lyrics are amazing. Philadelphia. Yeah. yeah. And some of the lyrics, and actually, you know, his album this year, Darkness in the Edge of Town, some of the lyrics are fantastic. His ability to create stories quite in similar in a way to Randy Newman or um, Tom Waits, um, who had a great album this year as well. So I do, you know, I rate him. I I, I do rate him, but it it has never kind of emotionally particularly touched me. There's something about it that I think Meatloaf tapped into, because I think obviously Meatloaf's debut, Bat Out of Hell, is part part rock opera and part Bruce Springsteen. And they Mm. tap into the excessive theatricality because one of the things about Bruce Springsteen is that he's seen as the great blue collar singer songwriter and I think his background was um, was a lot more middle class than the characters he sings about and there's something to me that as much as he's a great songwriter great lyricist great vocalist it's it's theatrical you know to me it's almost as theatrical as the lamb lies down on Broadway if that makes any sense to you but you like that, but you don't like Bruce Springsteen. I do, partly because I think with something like The Land Master on Broadway, for whatever reason, when somebody like Gabriel, drinking game favourite again, sings mythical stories, for whatever reason, they're t- tremendously emotional. The emotions kind of get through his Greek mythological characters. You know, he's a really repressed upper middle class Englishman who's on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And you can hear it in the Lamia. How does that speak to you when Bruce talking about real life, real... I'm playing devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bruce talking about real life and real people in real situations. And you are very much a lyricist that comes from that tradition. You don't come from the Peter Gabriel tradition at all. You come from the tradition of real stories, real people, kitchen sink, right? So how is it that Bruce doesn't resonate with you, but Peter Gabriel talking about whatever it is, I just remember it being ridiculous does resonate with you how is that, how does well, that work? obviously in warrington we did have lamia in our local <laughs> pools as you can imagine what is the lamia, Just <laughs> the lamia again i think it's another greek mythological the lamia seems to be some creature that, that in a sense um takes away the purity and virginity of the character and strips them down and turns them into the slipper man if i'm is the, it a metaphor is I that what you're saying it, oh, is it a metaphor I think you're right. There's a metaphor in there. Yeah, I don't know. Look, for me, the lyrics do nothing for me. But I can answer your question quite easily because it's something that both of us believe in, actually. And that is that great songs and great lyrics are not necessarily the same thing. So there are great lyricists whose lyrics I can look at and think that is brilliant. 
but the music Bruce, does nothing yeah. for me. No, absolutely. No, Whereas, it's a, and I'm, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> some of the best songs of all time have got terrible, terrible lyrics. Ultimately, it's about the emotional conviction of the singer. It's about the arrangements. It's about the song itself, the melody. Does it enchant you? So something like the Carpet Crawlers, I can't for the life of me tell you what it's about. But... I can tell you that there's something really beguiling and sensuous in the melody and something cracked in Gabriel's vocal performance that makes me love it. Same, in, same with Kate Bush. I mean, Kate Bush this year has produced two brilliant albums that emotionally floored me then and emotionally floor me now. But I don't necessarily relate to them. I don't necessarily think they're particularly great lyrics, but there's something very intense and on the edge emotionally about the vocal delivery. And also in the case of both Bush and Genesis, harmonically, this music is quite exotic. It has twists and turns that I find quite fascinating and quite moving. I, I really like Kate's lyrics on the first two albums. I've got to say, a song like Wow, for example, I think the lyrics are very, very clever and very, very touching. But anyway, but I take your point, and I was playing devil's advocate because, of, of course, I agree with that. When I read Bruce Springsteen lyrics, I think they're brilliant. I don't relate to the the musical setting. I don't rem- I don't relate to his voice, his performance, the way he delivers, and I don't relate to the the sort of music. My bad, I'm sure it just doesn't do it. But I love a lot of, I, I do love a lot of artists that have been very influenced by Bruce Springsteen. Early Waterboys and Mike Scott stuff, massive, massive yeah, yeah. chunk of Bruce Springsteen influence. I love, I love those records, you know. So interesting. There's, there's actually another artist here that was very influenced by Bruce, uh, Warren Zevon. Oh, yeah. Warren Zevon. I don't know how you say it, excitable boy. Now you're a big fan. I don't know much about him. Um, uh, except I've read a book about him, so I do know a lot about him. <laughs> yeah. But I don't. I've I've never explored the catalogue because the bits I've heard didn't necessarily resonate with me. But you you you've got something to say about this album, Excitable Boy. I just really like it. I don't know why. And and again, you're right. It has a certain Bruce Springsteen characteristic. Um, he produced an album, I think, about two three years earlier. His debut, seventy five, seventy six self-titled which was much more country singer songwriter you know in some ways it was much more like a lyrically incisive eagles it was coming from a totally different place this album has got a very very clean late 70s production that echoes springsteen but for whatever reason i love it lyrically he's clearly influenced by somebody like randy newman again he's telling stories more than anything else um, and he had the fluke hit with Werewolves of London. Um, mm-hmm. Which I do know, which I do know, yeah. Yeah, I, so it, it's one of those albums that is inventive, fun, serious. It has beautiful ballads, and it's got a really nice shift from quite up-tempo pop rock tracks to very cutting emotional ballads. And, and the title track, I suppose, is a good example of a lyric that I think is both good, but one that I find interesting because on one level, it's some kind of jaunty pop rock piece about the excitable boy, but the excitable boy of the of the song is in effect a psychopath. And you gradually realise okay. this. So it... it it's interesting, you know, it kind of subverts the forms. And I, I just think it's a, you know, he, he is a kind of an underrated uh, singer-songwriter. Whether he made anything better than this album, I'm not sure. So you mentioned earlier another contemporary of Bruce Springsteen's, uh, Tom Waits and, and Blue Valentine came out this year. I, I just think, uh, I mean, 
everything I feel about Bruce Springsteen, I feel the opposite about Tom Waits. I absolutely adore him. Um, the voice, everything, the context, the character, everything does it for me. Yeah. And in, in many ways, it is as blue collar and working class and American, deeply seated in America, Americana as Bruce. There's a song on this record that is just the lyrics just destroy me. I'm sure you know a postcard from a hooker in Minneapolis. Yeah, yeah. And it's again, you talk about the, the, the Warren Zaven track having that kind of twist. You know, of course, you, you and I both know the twist. I won't spoil it for the people who maybe haven't heard this song. The twist in this song is devastating when it comes. And it is that idea of storytelling, something not New York or L.A., but some deadbeat, dusty, out of the way town in the in middle America or out somewhere out of the way where people feel frustrated, where people feel trapped, where people feel yeah. unable to get out of their kind of paralysis, their, their sort of p- paralyzed lifestyles uh, of drugs and being hookers and shooting pool and drinking beer. And there's some, and I know we talked about this before on the show. You've always felt that character of his was slightly contrived. Yeah. Um, I never did. I always completely bought into it. I think there is a lot of him in his characters. And I, t- I totally believe in him and his characters. And for all the, the sort of plaudits that the 80s and the reinvention of, of Tom Waits in the 80s gets. And I love those records, too. I do adore these records he made in the 70s when he was playing that kind of slightly sozzled piano barroom barfly troubadour. And when he gets it right on an album like this, I just think the songs are just genius. Kentucky Avenue on this record. Wow. You know, just heartbreaking songs, heartbreaking songs about people that have just become trapped in their own sort of sort of small town world. And I think that's something that definitely spoke to me. You know, obviously, I was in a very different small town in a very different country but yeah it, it it did and does resonate and and I sort of agree with you that you know Blue Valentine especially is arguably his best album actually you know that I, I loved Swordfish Trombones when it came out and I loved Rain Dogs and so on and, and, and I slightly grew tired of the character and the forced experimentation but at this stage the stories are brilliant they are very tender i think that's the thing that they're 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 very literate and they're very tender and they manage to kind of capture another period quite well because almost I, i think there's kind of an imagery in his work that reminds me of great american short stories of the 30s and 40s and he's sort of yeah yes you know he enters that world and and yeah i agree you know i think there's a real tenderness in the title track Blue Valentine's is, is one of Amazing. my favourite. Yeah, I mean, you listen to an album like Blue Valentine or, or some of the other records from the 70s, things like Nighthawks at the Diner, Small Change, and it's almost like you're listening to a musical, a musical equivalent of a, of a Bukowski novel, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah, got yeah. that same sort of atmosphere of relentless, that no matter what you do, how whatever you try to achieve, you're some life will just slap you down again. There's yes. also that really sinister picture on the back of the album cover of him sort of standing over Ricky Lee Jones as she's sort of pushing her <laughs> onto the he's so he's he's playing that kind of downbeat pimp character to perfection at this time so another another artist i have to say um that i've never completely this this would go into the same category as bruce springsteen for me or less so bob dylan amazing i've just never been a big fan i like a few songs a few records it's i've just never completely 
connected with Dylan. But you've here you've put here an album on the list I've never heard, Street Legal. Yeah. Um, which originally you had on the guilty pleasures list. <laughs> I just want to say that to, to the yeah. folks out there. Tim obviously has some reason. Why is this? Why would this potentially be a guilty pleasure? Well, I, I mean, I really like Street Legal. It's a very dense album. He's using a lot of um, almost gospel backing vocals, full band. I think he has a Christian album. Drums. No, it's his it pre-Christian oh, okay. album. And it's got a real kind of wall of noise production. So it's, it's quite different. I, I mean, I really like his sort of mid-70s. Uh, but it's funny with Dylan. I, I love his very early stuff. So um, times are a changing era where it's real stripped down folk. And his voice has such a presence. And then after that, I become slightly less interested. But then again, I get interested around the time of Blood on the Trucks, which I think is a devastating album. Brilliant record. And, I like that one, yeah. you know, Desire, I think, is fantastic. And this kind of comes out of Desire in that it's got that dense band sound. And what's interesting about the album is um, is that Street Legal in Britain <clears throat> had a big hit, got brilliant reviews. In America, it was seen as the death of Dylan. For whatever reason, there was a major schism between how the Americans and the British perceive this album. So that's why I put it in the guilty pleasures that, you know, if you read your great American critics, you know, Dave Marsh or whoever on Street Legal, you know, this is the all time bottom of Dylan's career before he gets even worse with his Christian albums, of course, as far as they're concerned. But I think there's a great exuberance, a brilliant density of sound. Dylan's enjoying it and he's finding himself in a different sonic space. So for me, it was a strong Bob Dylan album that comes off Desire quite nicely. So also in Singer Songwriters this year, Comes a Time by Neil Young. I love this record. You know, again, uh, for every Dylan or Springsteen that I don't quite get, there is a Waits or a Neil Young that I completely get and completely adore comes a time is one of my favorite neil young albums and it's interesting because it's you, you were talking earlier about uh, we were talking earlier about elvis costello and how this so-called sort of post-punk angular post-punk figure a couple of years later was making very very lush country records and neil young's somebody that's kind of always played that gag isn't he i mean he's gone from making sort of proto grunge records to doing these very sentimental country records and this one is one of his most sentimental in the sense that it has these very lush string synthesizer parts um on some of the songs which makes a very sort of warm bed of acoustic guitars it almost sounds like alan parsons mm. might have produced a neil young album uh it has that very sort of golden lush quality to it and some of his most beautiful songs the title track I think is a wonderful song. Very, very country. And certainly in the UK, growing up in the UK, yeah. you and I, country music kind of been further away from the mainstream. Kenny Rogers, Coward of the County, being the possible <laughs> uh, aberration and the exception that proves the rule. We just didn't know country. I mean, I don't know about you. I just didn't know country music. I had never heard it. I had no interest in hearing it. So I wonder what I, I, I made of, I can't quite remember what I would have made of things. like. I don't think I would have heard it at the time, but certainly I would have heard it reasonably shortly afterwards. Just thinking it was an absolutely beautiful, touching, emotional singer-songwriter record, yeah. um, which I think has, has grown with age. It's one of those ones that probably was a little bit overlooked. I mean, I might be wrong, but it was probably just seen as, oh, another Neil Young it, it album. It seems as if it's lost in the middle somewhere, because I think obviously American Stars and Bars, I mean, Zuma, I think, is brilliant. It's one of my favourite Neil Young albums, 75. American Stars and Bars, which preceded this, is much more raw 
really and you can see how it fits in with the zeitgeist and this as you say it's kind of smooth it's gentle it's much more the logical follow-up to harvest isn't it in a way it's more conventional in terms of its songwriting but much more slick much slicker than harvest harvest still has a sort of barn a sort of playing it in the barn like quality this doesn't have that no and 79 he's back into his guitar crazy horse extravaganzas and and name checking johnny rotten you know so and i guess it's kind of lost um but yeah it's it's a lovely album i suppose it kind of has that um although it's not as out there it's got that van morrison common one aspect that it's just him making an album for himself drawing from influences he likes and i was slightly more aware of country because my dad actually liked dolly parton and Kenny Rogers and uh, and obviously in later years I kind of really grew to like people like Willie Nelson, Patsy Cline and Johnny Cash. So I'm sort of slightly more familiar with its vocabulary, but um, yeah, re- really sweet album. And I guess that's that's why it's almost kind of a forgotten album because it's not the angry Neil Young that you know the punks loved. But I think what I'm saying is that amongst the the, the real fans of Neil Young, this is an album that has grown in stature over the years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I might be wrong about that, but I certainly feel that, and I know, I know there are other people that feel the same. Lovely record. So one last record in this category that I think maybe you want to talk about, which you've, you've referred to already, Tim, is Al Stewart's record from this year, Time Passages, which is an Alan Parsons uh, production. And also has a hypnosis sleeve, if, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. And uh, great guitar player on this record. I think it's Tim 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 Rennick plays guitar. There's a fantastic underrated guitar player who ended up playing with Floyd a couple of years later on the Wall Tour, I think. So tell us about this album then, Tim. This is the follow-up to Year of the Cat, isn't it? Yeah, it, it still was a big success, especially in America. But I guess again, as we're talking this year of beginnings and endings, you know, this is the last. Stewart album where he's developed his sound to a certain level, you know, enhanced by Alan Parsons. It's a very lush singer-songwriter album with great playing, great solos, lovely songs. And again, with Stewart, lyrically, he's always been an interesting character because he's used history as his starting point, historical stories and so on. And the only thing really to say is that it's a logical follow-on from Year of the Cat. It's a really strong follow-on from Year of the Cat title track was was big hit single in a few territories but it kind of marks the end really of this style and of his cultural impact um which is which is a pity because you know he remained an interesting songwriter and has got quite a a lovely voice which is i think we've said before you know you can certainly hear neil tennant as uh, as listened to al stewart um so yeah it, it was more that it was kind of it was it was an end to that phase that from you know, 66 to 78, he's built up this career and unexpectedly he's become an enormous concert drawer and chart artist in America. But what you're saying is he, he moving into the 80s, he wasn't able to reinvent himself in the way that perhaps people like Tom Waits um, yeah. and Bruce Springsteen were able to reinvent themselves. So I think he tried but failed, yeah. I'm a, I'm a fan. I, I do like Al Stewart. I particularly love, you know, the the first, uh, not the very first record, but certainly the second and third record, mm. Love Chronicles, Zero She Flies, big fan, Modern Times, great record. There's a whole string of great records through the 70s. He kind of became known for doing that kind of historical song, didn't he? It became yes, his gag yeah. um, that he would sort of take take things from history and almost use them as metaphors for, yeah. for whatever was going on in his life or in you know in, modern, in the modern world, which is a very unique and very interesting perspective. So a great great lyricist what's the state of the mainstream in 1978 
And just to let's just quickly go through the records that are in this category. Bloody Tourist by 10CC, Some Girls by The Rolling Stones, Who Are You by The Who, A Single Man by Elton John, the debut Dire Straits record, another debut record, Jazz by Queen, um, All This in Heaven 2 by Andrew Gold, and Level Headed by Sweet. <laughs> um, maybe we should talk first about the album that really didn't come off, which for me is the 10CC one. As yeah. A massive, massive fan of the previous 10cc album, Deceptive Bends, which was unquestionably Eric Stewart and Graham Gouldman proving that they could make a fantastic record without Godly and Cream. Suddenly the magic's gone. The single, which was massive, Dreadlock Holiday, is almost a novelty record. Um, And 10cc always they were they always had kind of gags behind their records. But I never thought of them as a novelty band. And this is quite a crass novelty record, isn't it? The impersonations of Jamaican people are yeah, kind yeah. of in this in this day and age, they sound very crass. So I think this is this is a very disappointing record. This for me is the end of 10cc as I as I kind of know it. You feel the same. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Again, in that beginnings and endings, this is it. You know, and what's interesting is because I kind of had a category five CC because Godly and Cream had produced L in 1978, which is a brilliantly inventive record. And what's funny is if you look, at it, it's almost like overnight 10cc have gone prematurely grey and put on 40 pounds. It's almost unrecognisable, whereas Godly and Cream have got the childlike curiosity of sheet music in L still. You know, they're finding new territories to explore and they sound excited and excitable. The 10cc album is suddenly very, very staid and very middle aged. And, and I did buy it at the time. And like, you know, Deceptive Benz was almost like a placeholder. It was almost like Gulman Stewart saying, you know what, we can do 10cc just as well and they did you and know they did. Bends yeah. is a really confident um response it's and, a brilliant record yeah yeah you know so I totally agree with you but this one they've become i think it's a six-piece band and it feels a bit more diffuse there were some great you know to be fair i think it's old father time and um tokyo there are a few good tracks on it but it's not yeah i agree it's not terrible it's just very disappointing based on the bar they set with the previous record yeah. Because you're thinking to yourself, you're thinking to yourself, as I'm sure a lot of people were thinking at the time, they've lost half their members. They've lost the creative core of the band. They've lost the quirky element of the band. They're not going to be able to cut it now. And they prove everyone wrong with Deceptive Bends, which is a brilliant. I mean, there's just the singles alone, Things We Do For Love. It's funny, I was watching Afterlife, the new Rishi Gervais series, and it's massively featured at the okay. beginning of the season. And it, it works brilliantly. Um, and you just think, what a great song. You know, that's... In many ways, that's as good as I'm Not In Love. I mean, as a love song, yeah. it's right up there with I'm Not In Love. And then Good Morning Judge, fantastic, another fantastic single. And then the 14-minute epic, Feel The Benefit. They're doing everything right on this album. What suddenly creates this creative um, downturn? It's almost like, how could it have gone? And it's like you say, it's not terrible. It's not terrible. It's just not very good. It's just not very mm. good. Yeah, I, I don't know, because again, even thinking of Good Morning Judge, the production on that is as fizzy, inventive and unusual as a production yeah. on cheap music. Again, it's them saying, you thought this was a quirky, inventive art pop band. It is. And they do everything right. You know, the, the stereo separation, it sounds great. Whereas this, um, it's very comfortable. You know, there's nothing particularly imaginative about anything in the production. It's very standard. 
And at times they sound incredibly tired. And some of the stories, I think there's one about the um, falling asleep on the tube, whatever this, it's, it's just a terrible idea for a lyric, pretty terribly executed. And they almost sound bored and asleep while doing it at times. Do you think this would be an example of a band that were maybe looking at what was going on in music, punk and all that stuff, and suddenly thinking to themselves, what do we do? How how can we still be relevant? Because the reason I ask is we're going to talk about another album in a moment, which is the Who album from this year, which I think is definitely Pete Townsend responding. You know, the, these some of these guys, the Mick Jagger maybe also feeling that. Some of these guys feeling like these young kids are looking at them as like the old, the old guard, the old geezers, the irrelevant old fogies. Even though, as you pointed out, the age difference... Well, in some cases, the punks are older, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Jet Black from The Stranglers is probably older than Pete Townsend. John Fox. And, you know, John Fox, Dave Foreman, right. Jet Black, they're older than most of the artists they replaced, yeah. And yet I wonder if people like Eric Stewart and Graham Goldman, Pete Townsend, uh, Mick Jagger, are looking at this new thing going on and thinking, oh, Christ, we're obsolete. The, you know, the kids no longer are going to relate to us. What are we going to do? And in the case of 10CC, it's like, OK, let's make a record for middle aged people instead. Let's not even try. Let's not try. You know, let's. I wonder. I mean, I'm, I'm reading perhaps too much. It's, it's difficult, it. isn't it? I mean, I, I think that there was a lot to prove on Deceptive Bends and they proved it. And maybe that was it, that they had the massive success and they became more of what they were. And let's face it, Goldman and Stewart are incredibly talented, but they were always the more mainstream parts of 10cc and maybe whereas you know i've done this before because say you know with when i'm doing albums sometimes i think about how you might force me to sing something or do something or how brian who i work with so sometimes as much as i'm following my own instincts i also think okay i don't want i don't want to slip into my own clichés and i try and access what other people i work with and respect would suggest I do. And I wonder that on Deceptive Bends, they're accessing Godly and Cream. They're thinking, you know, we're going to show them. And on this album, there's none of that Godly and Cream influence. So, you know, they had nothing left to prove or they felt it because they'd had huge hit. And then Dreadlock Holiday's number one all over the world. I think I would I would agree with you were it not for one thing, that on Deceptive Bends, there are two songs which I think are as good as any lush ballad they ever produced, which have no aspects of godly and creep people in love and things we do for love they're corny and i mean that in a positive way romantic love songs classic eric stewart love songs they're brilliant they're as good yeah, as yeah. any of the ones they made during the classic the so-called classic godly and cream era but on bloody tourists the attempts to write those songs again are suddenly f- sounding pretty flat so for you and i is the attempt to i'm not in love and people in love on that album and it does i can't even remember it i can't quite exhausted it. yeah i mean the voice sounds exhausted it it uses that vocal sound you know the master vocal sound that defines i'm not in love and people in love and the beginning of the things we do for love that's in it and it just just doesn't rescue the piece. And People in Love was the track that destroyed the band, of course, because they presented that to Godly and Cream and Godly and Cream hated it. And there's a version on one of the box sets with Godly and Cream providing absolutely demented backing vocals on People in Love. Um, and Kevin Godley always said, I hated that track. So we, they were always kind of destroy, they're trying to destroy the track. I mean, I love it. And I actually love the Deceptive Bands yeah, version, the straighter version. But um, 
I, I, I don't know because, you know, we've often queried this, that, you know, when bands have gone off so conclusively so quickly, what is it? Is, is it, you know, is it boredom? Is it drugs? Is it success? I, I'm not quite sure. But, yeah, it is a conundrum. So let's ask let's ask the question about some of these other albums. And, Tim, have any of these also gone off? Right. Yeah. Who are you by the who? Have they gone off on this record? Oh, yes and no, I'm going to say with that. On one level, this is a great continuation from that kind of fusion of minimalist synthesizers, you know, the Terry Riley aspect and rock that they pioneered on Who's Next and Quadrophenia. And it's a logical conclusion to that. And it's damn good. Um, On another level, suddenly it sounds quite tired. It sounds quite middle aged. It sounds quite reflective about their position in the pantheon of rock greats, very self-conscious. Um, I mean, a lot of this is is either Entwistle or Townsend musing on their relevance in the present day and age. And as much as I love old Rog, and I do, you know, I think Rog is, is great. He's a great rock vocalist and, and he has the look of the great rock vocalist. He sets the template. He suddenly sounds as if he doesn't know what he's singing about. You know, he's singing Townsend's lyrics and it sounds very blustery very middle-aged, very excessive. So in some ways, this album doesn't match what I think Townsend wants it to be. Who Are You is a great single, and there are a few really good pieces on it, but for whatever reason, it sounds a lot of bluster, a lot of excess. Um, it isn't matching what it thinks it's saying. I think you're right. There's, I like the record very much, but it does sound suddenly a bit middle-aged. And again, we just remind people that they were... Barely 30. I think Townsend maybe was just just at 30. But still, yeah. But they sound like they're threatened by what's going on around them and the attempt to sort of, you know, put on their Dr. Martin boots and be the who that they were, the sort of furious the who that they were on Live at yeah. Leeds or it just isn't quite coming off. And I think it's because Townsend was in a different place. And actually, there's a beautiful song which didn't make the record called, um, I think it's called No Road Romance. It's a Townsend ballad. It's a bonus yeah, yeah, track really on good. it. Stunning, and it's not. It wasn't recorded for the Who Are You Who Are You record, probably because he felt it wasn't angry enough to put on the record. You know what I mean? But it's actually one of the best songs I think he wrote during that period. What about Some Girls by the Rolling Stones? Gone off? Uh, no, I mean that was actually got very good reviews. I at love the time. that record. It, you know, it's yeah. a good Rolling Stones record. I mean, but go, going back to the Who, one of the things is maybe there was too much fine wine and far in their gullet, and and I think. Pete Townsend recovers his voice. You know, if you think of um, all the best cowboys have Chinese eyes, I mean, brilliantly poetic and pretentious. And he sounds like himself on that album. It's almost like and and, and it merges quite nicely with the more self-conscious art pop of the early 1980s. So I think there's there's a real disconnect in, in Who Are You? Whereas actually the Rolling Stones, they do sound like they're having fun by comparison. What about, um, right, Elton John, a single man? gone off to a degree yeah i mean i think that era he had two of his best singles i really liked ego the non-album single brilliant which was like a kind of i don't know late 70s psychedelic pop classic in my mind a bit like david essex's imperial wizard it was reinventing psychedelia for the mor 1970s um and obviously song for guy is a really touching masterpiece with such a beautiful simple arrangement i mean people forget because it's ubiquitous it's one of those tracks a bit like i'm not in love i guess where people think of it as this ubiquitous 70s ballad 
But it's such an imaginative, stripped down arrangement. It, it's very unusual and, of course, incredibly long for a single as well. And very dark as well. I mean, the only very lyric dark. in it is life isn't everything. <laughs> life isn't yeah. everything, you know. Um, no, I, I again, I'm an, a big apologist for this record. I adore the previous Elton John record, Blue Moves. I think it's one of his great masterpieces. A single man is a slight step down. He's obviously he's not he's not working with Bernie Taupin for the mm-hmm. first time ever in his career to this day he's trying to work with another lyricist the lyrics are a little bit more generic a little bit more banal um which i don't think helps and it's interesting that the strongest track on the record is the 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 song with virtually no words at all in it but i think it's still classic classic elton in a way it could be no one else Mm -hmm. um the the sound is still there the Elton, the classic Elton John sound the songs perhaps aren't quite as inspired they're a little bit more meandering and lyrically they're a little bit more banal than than we're used to but I think he's definitely still holding his head up and of course uh, as you say the ego single the non-album single is as imaginative as anything he'd he'd done during yeah. the seventies isn't it this another album though that might be slightly defined by the cover it's not a love beat oh, it's a brilliant but- cover. Yes, but what I'm saying is it's not a love beach, but you look at that cover and there's an aspect at that time of people like Townsend, Moon, Daltrey, Elton John living lives that are very detached from the ordinary person. Lording it over their audience with how rich they are. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> No, you're right. You're right, um, yeah, which is, which, which is the antithesis of the sort of punk. <laughs> yeah. In a way, I admire that because it's almost the, it's the exact yeah. opposite. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. what I'm going to do in the time of punk is I'm going to take a photograph in Top and Tails outside my mansion house with a Rolls Royce. Yeah. That'll do it. That'll teach Johnny Rotten. I love that. That's 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 very Elton in a way, and then very not Elton in a way yes. too. Um, I mean, I remember when we were doing Personal Shopper, and he was doing the voiceover of Personal Shopper. The one thing he didn't want to say was personalized number plate. He said, I hate, fucking hate that. I hate people who have personalised number plates. So I think part of him still is that young kid from from Pinna mm. that hates that idea of, of nouveau riche and stuff. But of course, that's also part of what we love about Elton John, isn't it? You know, the fact that he does have a, a whole a whole room full of, of scarfs and, uh, you know, whatever it is he carries around onto, you know, the sort of excess, yeah, yeah. the sort of Lord of the Manor thing about him. Um, what about Queen? Certainly they haven't gone off at all, have they? This is uh, one of the great, one of the best records jazz from this year. I was going to, I was going to say it's, we were talking about, things that grow in stature we were talking about the neil young album how it seems to have grown in stature don't stop me now Mm -hmm. this song has become a standard hasn't it and yet at the time it was a minor hit i remember when it came out as a single it got to like number 17 and then kind of disappeared it wasn't considered one of their big songs for years and years and years it wasn't considered one of their big songs and then, I might be wrong about the timeline here, but it was used in Shaun of the Dead. Mm-hmm. And it's been used in so many movies. And it's one of those songs. Queen were always very clever, weren't they? They came up with those kind of slogan songs, like We Are the Champions, We Will yeah. Rock You, Don't Stop Me Now. Songs which seem to have endless applications mm. for for syncs on TV and in movies. Yes, yes. And Don't Stop Me Now has become one of those, hasn't it? I mean, it's my, my stepdaughters, they know this song very well because they've seen it in kids cartoons and movies and tv shows and it's become a standard and it's and it's on this this record jazz i think you're right i mean queen had the ability to as you say almost make simple slogan songs that everybody could remember after the first couple of plays yet were very complex you know you think of the arrangement and don't stop me now vocally it's stunning you know you think of 
even We Will Rock You. That is a very clever stripped down arrangement. I know that's the album before this, but yeah, I, I quite like News of the World and Jazz because they're all over the place. They're still quite inventive, still quite mad, and they're still at the top of their game in terms of their ability. You know, they're not albums that are perhaps as coherent as their greater albums, Night of the Opera and so on, but they're still very playful and very on form, if that makes any sense. You know, this is an album that's all over the place, Jazz. No, you're right. I, I mean, I perhaps slightly controversially feel Queen never really made coherent records um, to the level perhaps of some of their contemporaries. They yeah. were ultimately the most incredible, a bit like Haver, they were the most extraordinary singles band you could ever imagine. If you listen to all their records, there's even on the the, the peak albums like Night of the Opera and Sheer Heart Attack there's always a couple of track novelty tracks or something that's not quite strong enough and I think that's one reason why you don't tend to see Queen albums in the greatest albums of all times lists certainly not up there with your Sgt Peppers yeah. and your Neverminds and your, your Blonde on Blondes or whatever or your Exile on Main Street you don't see Queen albums up in that kind of vaulted company and I think the reason for that is the albums were usually about three or four ex- extraordinary flashbulb moments just brilliant songs I mean let's face it Freddie wasn't trying to be down with the punks was he <laughs> at all I mean he was he was still playing playing at being Freddie Mercury you know this sort of very flamboyant exotic frontman, which again was very much against the punk but it was a massive record. It had big hit singles, other singles off this record, Bicycle Rays, Fat Bottom Girls. Uh, they had a lot of great, great pop singles off this record that I think leave you with the impression the album is maybe better than it actually is. And I think that yeah. often is the case with, with Queen records. Well, it's me. probably telling, isn't it, that their best-selling record is The Greatest Hits, one of the best-selling records Absolutely. of all time, of course. Yeah, they were a, always a brilliant singles album. And I think, you know, maybe Queen 2 and A Night at the Opera aside, and they're even quite variable there aren't many consistent statements. I think so. I think Sheer Heart Attack actually, is, for me, is their most consistent record. But even that has a couple of you know tracks I could do with that. Um, do you want to talk about... Oh, actually, before we do that, another great debut record this year, Dire Straits. Dire Straits, a band that instantly passed Go, do not collect £200, go to the mainstream. Because most of these other bands that we're talking about here kind of almost started off as, as you say, drawing on New Wave. But Dire Straits never were, were they? They went straight to the mainstream in spectacular fashion. I mean, it's a a really great debut record. But what's interesting about it is it's very unflashy because, you know, they came from, I guess, a sort of pub rock background with roots blues, roots country, root folk influence. And it's a very unselfconscious record. One of the things I kind of like about this is probably... Really, along with Love Over Gold, the album I like most by Dire Straits. And it's because it, it's oblivious to the trends that are out there. It's lovingly, it's beautifully recorded. The guitars are beautifully recorded. You know, you can you can see why people in guitar shops got excited when they listened to I it. Mean, he is, I mean, he is, you say there's not flash, there's nothing flashy about it. He is a flashy player. He's a flashy guitar player. I think a lot of people, people like my dad, who probably would have given up on, you know, listening to pop music, uh, would have heard Mark Knopfler's guitar playing and thought, ooh, that's, you know, he can play the guitar mm. and probably bought the record for that reason. You know, he he's a flash. I mean, he's a very tasteful player, but he's he is a very accomplished, technically flashy player, isn't he? I guess, but it just, I mean, you know, Sultans of Swing was was a great single. The cover's a really understated, almost ECM jazz style cover, isn't it? There's, there's nothing about it that screams big hit is what I'm saying. And a lot of the songs are quite understated, partly because Knopfler has got an incredibly 
understated non-voice, you know, which you could link in a way to early Bob Dylan. But even then you're, you're struggling. But he, yeah, he comes out, sounds like himself and sells millions of an album that on paper should be a disaster. Yeah, it's almost like they've been one of the biggest bands in the world by stealth, you know, yes. it's almost like without yeah. trying. Yeah, but great. I mean, it's like, again, you know, we talked about some of that music that's almost impossible to dislike, you know, the Jerry Rafferty's and the, the Fleetwood Mac rumours and those. And Dire Straits are another of those bands. I think I defy anybody to say that there's not any, there's not something in the Dire Straits catalogue that they don't admit to liking. Um, they're just they're just great songs, beautiful production, beautifully performed. So, Tim, you, you've put here sweet, level-headed, sweet, sweet, go prog, art, pop. OK, they've kind of got their timing a bit wrong, haven't they, in that, if that's the case? Well, they um, have and they haven't because it, basically, you know, they were the ultimate glam pop band with anthems, you know, hard rock riffing. I say the ultimate, obviously T-Rex for me are the ultimate and the best of that. But they were there along with Slade, along with T-Rex, banging out the hits in the early 70s. I was never a fan, never particularly liked it. But I did go out and buy, you know, this is the thing where I went out and got X-ray specs, oh, bondage up yours, probably with Sweet Love Is Like Oxygen at Warrington Rumbelows. And um, Love Is Like Oxygen is a really complex art pop single in the 10cc meets Floyd style. And the album has even got a multi-part epic you know, this, as you say, suddenly they've become aware of other strands of 1970s music just at the point when it's not going to help them. So the album didn't sell, but Love Is Like Oxygen was a deservedly huge single and, and a very good one, I thought. Yes, I know the single too. I, I don't know the album, but if you if it is just the way you describe it, it is like they've, it's like their timing could not be worse. It's like you've gone prog at exactly the moment that everyone else is is banishing their prog rock albums to their local charity shop and changing their flared trousers for drain pipes. But I like that about it. I like that about it. Yeah, yeah. And the sweet single, obviously, being I think probably their their biggest hit for some years, wasn't it? If I remember rightly. Yeah, yeah. Like well, Northern Lights Renaissance, you know, yeah. that made the band their biggest success with an album, you know, produced by David Henschel, multi-section epics, orchestra, no concessions. And I kind of like the albums with no concessions. I suppose in a bullish way, Van Morrison rode out this period because he was just Van Morrison. He did not care for what was around. He cared for what he loved. And I sort of respect that bullishness, whereas Renaissance had this huge hit with an unexpected album, really, and song. And then I think became a little more self-conscious afterwards. It's like, how do we replicate this success? How do we maintain? And of course, through self-consciously doing it, they lose it. That that magic, that success slips away from them. It's interesting, isn't it? You, it's almost like, you know, you're pushing the stone up the hill. You're trying to get the big hit. You're trying to get over a career, you know, and then finally you have it. And it is the beginning of the end. And I think that that may be true of some of these other artists that we're looking at here that finally achieved this big crossover hit. Of course, Yes had just had their first real big hit of their career as well with Wonder yeah, Stories yeah. the year before. Yeah, sorry, I was going to say in the case of Genesis, um, the Follow You, Follow Me is what then defines what's to come. They have their big hit on an album that otherwise ignores 1978, but they have that hit, which becomes the template for the rest of the career. Which is the exception that proves the rule, as, as there always is yeah. one. Tim, I think we should stop there because we've been talking for two and a half hours and we're just about halfway through now, I think. So this is definitely going to be a two-parter. <laughs> So we'll forego all the other stuff about picking our favourite record of the year and most influential record of the year until we've we've done 
part two. But let's pause there, hold that thought, and we'll come back and do the rest of 1978 disco R&B, one-offs, rock, the old embrace the new, electro pioneers, progressive rock, jazz, and classical serious composition. All to come on another bumper, fun-packed episode of the album years. I can't wait. I can't wait either, Tim. I can't wait. Another <laughs> fun-packed episode with myself, Stephen Wilson, and Tim Bowness. Bye-bye. Bye for now. We'll be right back. 